Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. We're continuing our series through the book of Acts, and this is the beginning of Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts. We're actually going to spend three weeks on this sermon. We're going to break it into three parts. So there's a lot there to cover. And we have a lot of ground to cover today. So um, try, to, try to track along. Stay camped out in this passage. We're going to reference some others. But uh, I think it'll be helpful for us as we begin to move into Peter's sermon to, uh, to gain a better understanding of the ways in which God gifts us and uses the church and fulfills his promises that he's made to the church. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have given us Holy Scripture. And we're asking, God, that you would give us wisdom as we seek to understand it, that you would give us understanding, and that you would give us grace to respond in faith and repentance, that you would change us and even revive us by your word. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. A lot of churches are, um, are talking about success and how to be successful, and uh, they're not talking about it because it's new. They're not talking about it because, well, we're coming out of, out of COVID and out of all this political and social distress. Uh, that, of course, those are contributing factors. But the church talks about success, and by the church, I just mean churches in general, and evangelical churches in particular tend to talk a lot about success. And they talk about success because, especially in America, especially in the West, but especially here in America, we have an addiction to what we call success. And so churches will put a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of money into achieving success. And the problem is, is that for many of these churches, and that's all of us, I'm not pointing my finger at all these other churches. I mean, for, for many of us, when we start to talk about success, we don't take the time to define what success actually is. Even the, the, the dictionary definitions of success vary, right? Like one of the most popularly thought of or maybe conceived definitions of success is, is wealth and, and, and fame, right? It's, uh, it's respect, 
That's success in the minds of a lot of people. Though if you look at studies, most Americans don't define success that way. Most Americans define success in a more general term of achieving their own individual or established goals, which is a correct definition of success. There are many definitions. And what I find is that both of those definitions are what churches use to measure their success. It's either, well, we've established our own sort of benchmarks and we're going to achieve those. And when we achieve our benchmarks, we are successful, which is wrong. Or it's wealth, right? It's respect. It's fame. Um, our passage is going to help us here today. Our passage, and Peter's sermon in particular, and the book of Acts especially, is going to help us, Redeemer Fellowship, have a better understanding of God's promises to us, what he can and will do through us, and success in particular. The principle today is, I think, a corrective for some of us that, that need it, and it's an encouragement to all of us. And the principle is this. A church's success is either produced by the spirit or it is faked by the flesh. Of course, we're going to have to define success, but a church's success, a local church's success in their faithful attempt to do as God has called them, a church's success will either be produced by the spirit or it will be faked by the flesh, meaning it will be counterfeited. It will be a, a game, an imitation that is the result of men and women trying and striving in their own strength. Churches should aim for success, but we've got to define what it is. Now, let me just say on the front end, I, I think the best way for us to conceive of, uh, of success is to think of it in terms of, well, what's our part and God's part? Our part would be faithfulness to do the things God calls us to do and the way God calls us to do them. Is that clear enough? Success on our part is to do what God has called us to do in the way he's called us to do it. And then success on God's part, right, would be does God bless that work with a, an evident fruit that we can then see or rejoice in? And that's up to God, that's not up to us. And by this definition, that means that you can have a church of 50 that is wildly successful by God's standard or a church of 5,000 that is wildly unsuccessful by God's standard. Or you can have a church of 5,000 that is truly successful and honors the Lord and a church of 50 that isn't. It's not size dependent. We don't get to determine the benchmarks that make us successful, not as a church. Benchmarks aren't bad things to have or to think of, but they should not be what we use to measure our health or our success. Peter's sermon here is going to help us to think through this as he it begins this message, quotes from the book of Joel and begins to show us what the spirit actually does in the church, what the spirit did in the first century and what he continues to do. Now, before we get into the sermon, let me just say this um, for context, right? Uh, the disciples have been waiting in the upper room. Jesus said, wait there. The spirit's going to descend upon you and you'll be filled with the spirit. And then once you have the spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they wait. The spirit shows up, descends on Pentecost. They're all filled with the spirit, men, women, young and old. Uh, everybody's filled with the spirit and they all begin to speak in tongues. That is, they begin to speak languages that they did not know before 
beforehand, but they're actual earthly languages. And this is creating such a ruckus. It's 120 people. It's an average sized church in America, uh, maybe a little bit bigger than the average size. And so these 120 people are, are, are creating all of this noise. There's all this action going on. And so all these people in the area that have come into Jerusalem to see, to worship, uh, to go to the temple are, are now observing this phenomenon. And they begin to like really freak out, right? Because some of them look at all these, all this stuff that's happening and they're marveling. They're like, whoa, this is crazy. They're speaking in a language that I know from my home, uh, where I've come from to worship in Israel. Uh, but they look like they're locals. I don't know how they would know that language. So some of them are marveling at what happened and others are mocking what they're seeing, not totally understanding it. This is when Peter decides to stand up and preach. So two basic things I want us to sort of work through as we're looking at this passage. One is uh, the church's voice in the world, right? When when Peter begins to preach, I think we here have a pretty good reminder and an example uh, of the church's responsibility to speak to the world, to address the world. We see this in verse 14. Second thing we're going to look at a little bit later on is God's promise to the church, right? And God's work in the church as we seek to address the world. It's like, it's our part and his part, right? It's our, our voice, right? Our faithfulness to God and then the spirit's power, what God does. So verse 14, the church's voice in the world. Here's Peter, it begins. Peter standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. We'll just stop right there because it, we need to take a minute to recognize who this is, right? You know that this is Peter, right? Peter and the 11, so the 12, right? Matthias has taken Judas's place. So you got the 12 disciples, 12 apostles, but Peter is the one that stands up. And we're gonna see this in the book of Acts. Peter stands up. He is constantly elevated to a, a prominent place of leadership, which is interesting because if you've been paying attention to the, the, the New Testament, if you've been reading the gospels and you've been following, tracking Peter's uh, life, uh, he isn't the guy. He's not the guy you choose to be your main man, your spokesman, right? He tends to be a, a little uh, temperamental. He tends to be a little, a little hot and cold. Um, and in fact, at the end of Jesus' life, before he was actually crucified, as he's arrested, the disciples scatter. Peter's watching from a distance, and what is he doing? Well, he's, he's, he's afraid, he's fearful, he has no courage. And as he is asked as he's following Jesus during this arrest and everything, he's asked, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? What does Peter do? Nope, don't know him. Don't know that guy. Don't have anything to do with him. Leave me out of this. He is a coward. So Peter is a coward and a quitter in that moment. But here he is suddenly with great courage. He's bold. He's articulate. He's willing to stand up and suffer. His faith is big. It is strong. How does this happen? It's the spirit, right? I mean, this should be obvious for us because we see it all unfolding. Peter is transformed. This is what the spirit does in in each of us, right? The spirit strengthens us, grows us, strengthens our faith, our love for God, our love for each other as we stay connected to the means of grace. And the Holy Spirit uses the gifts that he gives us to leverage his work in the world. So it's the Holy Spirit at work in Peter. It says that Peter now stands with the 11, lifts up his voice and addresses them. Who are them? We've already said it's these people that have come to Israel, come to Jerusalem uh, to, to worship. So they've come from all over the world, these God-fearers and, and, and uh, Jews that have been scattered. They've come back to worship. So now they're all here from these different places. They're hearing the people speak in tongues. They're curious. They're confounded. They're incredulous about it. 
And so here's what Peter says. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. I want to stop again just because I love that here Peter is telling us about his aim, his aim in actually talking to the world. Right? The church is supposed to have a voice in the world. The church is supposed to stand up and speak. We're supposed to say something. Now, what is Peter's aim? Let, let this be known to you and, and hear my words. In other words, he's saying, I want you to understand something and I want you to heed that thing that you will then understand. I don't just want you to listen to what I have to say and then turn away. Peter is imploring. He is pleading. He is demanding. He is doing a lot more than just giving an opinion. And this is important for us as, as Christians, as a church, especially in the, in the 21st century, because Jesus has not commissioned the church to share our opinions or our convictions as if they are of little to no consequence with the world. You can take them or leave them. You know, hey, I'm just sharing my experience. It's just my perspective. No big deal. You do you. I'll do me. We're all good. But just thought you might want to hear it. You know, that's not, that is not what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus calls us to be his witnesses, to tell the truth, to preach the gospel, to herald good news. Yes, to share the faith. But it's a faith that demands. It's a faith that calls for a response. And this is the heart of evangelism. We're pleading with people to understand and to believe, to embrace, which means, right, which means that they have to disbelieve some things. They have to quit some things. They, they, they have to tear apart their worldview or part of their worldview, at least some of it, in order to embrace what is true. They have to reject some things in order to embrace others. You're not just sprinkling a little bit of, uh, of Jesus juice uh, into the mix and so that they can like, oh, they can add this into my, my sort of worldview or, 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 or my perspective on life. The church is called to speak to the world in a way that calls them to respond with faith and repentance. So the church is called to speak. Now, what is our message, right? We've been talking a lot about this. We even did a little mini conference just for our church a couple months ago, uh, just for Redeemer. Like, what is the mission of the church? What is the message of the church and all of that? And so we tend to put it out there front and center, but we revisit it because we know it's tempting for us to be sidetracked because there are many good things to talk about in the world, many good things to be excited about in the world, many important matters that we should, that we should be invested in in the world. But the church has one singular message that we are called to preach at all times and all places. And it's not politics, it's not social reform, it's not pop culture, it's not art. Those are all good things. We are called to preach Christ and him crucified. You remember when we uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper earlier today? I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen again and keep in mind the role of the Holy Spirit in the spread of the gospel, the, the growth of the church, the call for us to be witnesses, right? Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, I didn't come showboating. I didn't come trying to be the man with all the powerful words. or with all, I didn't come with, with a, a philosophy that, that you would find enticing. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. One message. 
One major appeal, because this is the thing that saves souls. This is the thing that changes a person's heart. This is the truth. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So even Paul says, this really feels like Acts, right? Because he says, listen, when I came, I preached to you. I kept it simple. I focused on Jesus. I preached the gospel. And what, what happened was, as I preached the gospel, the Holy Spirit of God attended that, and the Holy Spirit did the real work. So I was faithful to preach God's word, and the Holy Spirit is what made it fruitful by his power. So that way you don't think like, oh, I was converted by the preacher man. The preacher, the preacher changed my voice. The evangelist, the evangelist saved me. We don't think that way because we experience it completely different. We know, no, that was the power of God that changed my mind, that changed my heart. I mean, he used a person to share the word, but it was a demonstration of power. And this is far less uh, complicated when you keep it simple, when you keep your message clean and easy to understand and don't mix it with other philosophies. So the church is called to speak. We want to be careful not to get it wrong. Who is called to speak? Who is called to be the message bearers of, the, of, of this good news in the church? Is it leadership? No, Peter's a leader. He's the, he's the guy. He's Peter, right? Some people think he's the Pope. He wasn't, but some people think he was. Now, look, we want to say, yes, he absolutely uses leadership. That's why we have leadership, right? But all we have to do is just continue on in this sermon. And what we see is that it's not leadership alone that carries the message of the gospel to the world. It's not only leadership that speaks to the world. Prophecy has come to all of God's people, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, all of God's people bear this responsibility and share in this privilege. And we see this in the promise that's about, that we're about to, about to look at. So let me say this on the front end. The church is successful in the world when we are faithful to say what God wants us to say, but we can't get it confused. Sometimes we think we're being faithful Christians when we're known for saying what is morally right or what is supported by scripture, and that becomes our thing. It's important. We should have a prophetic voice. There's a lot that we need to say. But if our central message is something other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, we are not being faithful and we cannot make disciples. We can make converts to a movement. We can, we can get people to join our religious institution, but there will not be real discipleship happening. If we lose sight of our central message. So, church has a voice in the world preaching God's word and God's way. But in Peter's sermon, he's explaining how this is happening by quoting from the Old Testament, going to the book of Joel and letting them know that this is God at work through his people, God's promises to the church in verses 15 through 21. Now, the first thing that Peter does, I like this. The first thing that Peter does when he really gets into it, because he wants to get to his point, right? Preachers, like they want to get to their point. They want to they say the main thing, right? And so that's what Peter wants to do. But he doesn't just jump right to his main point. He first wants to address their charge, right? Because what was their charge? 
The people that were mocking these, these, these Christians who were filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues, they were mocking and they were saying, y'all are just drunk. We don't understand what's happening. And so we couldn't possibly be the dumb ones here. So you must be drunk. Right? We couldn't be misunderstanding things. You're drunk. That's what's going on. And they dismiss it all. And so Peter addresses this in verses 15 and 16. He says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day, which is a fun way to put it. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So a couple of things happening here. Number one, he addresses the charge. You don't always have to address charges, but he does here uh, for some reason. And I think he does it because it's such a dumb accusation. I mean, and I'm, I'm not trying, I don't call people dumb unless they're really being dumb. And, they're, and usually it's in the context of wickedness. And this is dumb. Uh, it's dumb because this is an accusation being leveled against godly, pious Jewish men and women. Like these are, these are sincere, devout people. They're religious. They're not getting drunk. Plus, it's 9 a.m. That's what it means. It's 9 a.m. Ain't nobody drunk right now. And it's not because, well, they don't get drunk till noon. That's not, that's not the point. That's the joke that people make. Like, oh, okay, it's too early. The point is, is that it's 9 a.m. This is the hour of prayer. This is the hour of devotion. You know what we're doing. We're Jews. We're serious about this stuff. We've been praying, man. We've been waiting. And we haven't even had our meal yet, which is when we would have wine. So this whole thing is nonsense. You're making no sense. I like that Peter says that. But then the second thing that he does is he moves from addressing the charge and he moves right to Scripture. When he goes Old Testament on him, he goes to Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And he goes to the Old Testament and he actually quotes it almost word for word. Sometimes they don't, they don't do that. Sometimes uh, the prophets, they'll quote the apostles. They'll quote the Old Testament, but it's like the, the living Bible. It's not like a real translation. It's not like, it's like word for word, kind of mushy. And they're still true. It's still truth. It's great, but they're not always quoting it word for word. Well, it's, it's almost word for word. In fact, it is word for word. He throws in a couple of extra words. But anyway, so it's like an amplified Bible. Maybe you can think of it like that. But anyways, so he's, um, he quotes Joel. Now, why is, he, why is he quoting Joel? Well, he's quoting Joel because these people that he's talking to would be familiar with it. They are a people of faith, right? They're familiar with the scriptures. They're there. They go to the temple. They're, they're there. And so they would be familiar. But he's also quoting Joel because he is a preacher and preachers speak from the revelation of God. They, they take God's word and they, they share it. They explain it. They teach it. They herald it. And that's what he does. He's doing this. He's using scripture because scripture is what God uses to penetrate the minds and the hearts of people. His spirit uses scripture to cause us to be born again, to cause us to grow in faith, to convict us of our sins and to draw us to Christ. So, that's why he is doing what he's doing. Now, when, when he starts to work through these, the, this passage from Joel and he begins to share what Joel said about the Holy Spirit and his work, we wind up getting into some controversial, nerdy debates, but important debates about spiritual gifts and what's in operation today and, and what is not. So let's just start with... Uh, with verses 17 and 18 to get sort of a, a picture here. 
Quoting from Joel, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. All right, prophecy, visions, dreams. Just three things that are mentioned and they already all just spoke in tongues. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on that doesn't happen at Redeemer Fellowship, right? This is not sound Baptisty at all. This sounds, to many of you, freaky. You don't like it, and that's okay. You don't have to be familiar with it to learn to appreciate it and to value what's actually happening here. So let me just, we have to do this. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you're new here, um, just, just bear, bear with me here as I explain this. In, in theological circles, right, in, in, in the Christian debates and, and traditions, when you're talking about the spiritual gifts, you have two basic camps, both of which are kind of annoying. Um, one, you have the cessationist camp, cessationism, cessationist. And then the other one, you have the continuationist camp, continuationists. And there are two basic perspectives on the gifts that God gives the church from these two groups of people. Both have a lot of people in them that love Jesus and love God's word and are godly and we should all be friends. But both also have angry, cantankerous, annoying people who think they know better than everybody else and they're unfriendly and they probably need to do some repenting, right? Both groups, just like most groups, you got good and bad people in them. So on the one hand, among the cessationists, in general, these are people that would say, well, in the first century, God, God's Holy Spirit descended and gave all of these gifts to all of God's people. And some of these gifts were for the apostolic era for a short period of time in which signs and wonders would be performed. And after that era came to a close, those gifts would not be in normal operation anymore. They would cease to function as they did. Think like uh, the, the gift of healing. When Peter or somebody could walk up to a person whose legs aren't sore from being at the gym. They don't work. They're, they're, they're withered down to bone. And Peter could say, rise and walk. He could heal a paralyzed man or, or woman. The gift of healing ceases to function after the apostolic era as it did during the apostolic era. This is what the, the cessationists would argue. Or speaking in tongues, speaking in these known languages, that's no longer happening today. It happened then. It happened for a specific period of time. Signs and wonders, the sign gifts, these, these miraculous gifts, they served a purpose during that, that, that first century for that period of time when the scripture was being completed and the church was expanding. These gifts were attention-getting verifiers that God was at work among his people. And then after the apostolic era, these things fade out and they're not practiced anymore. We just don't see them in operation. That's the cessationist view. The, in general, the continuationist view is like, nope, the, all the spiritual gifts are in operation in basically the same way, but not in exactly the same way, right? So they would say the gift of, the gift of healing, not just healing, the gift of healing still in operation, um, gift of tongues still in operation, uh, or even prophecy, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a minute. The problem is, is that when these two start debating, generally they're not defining their terms. So they start talking past each other and they, both of these groups fail to recognize, and I'm in one of these groups. I'm not playing, I'm not standing in the middle. I'm choosing team continuationist. Uh, con cessationist, dang it, I can't even talk. 
I'm over here in team. I'm not embarrassed about it. Like I have friends that are over there in the continuation. I'm team cessationist, all right? That's where I land. But even on team cessationist, you got different kinds of people, right? You got guys like John MacArthur. And by the way, praise God for John MacArthur. John MacArthur's books and sermons played such a huge role in my life, my spiritual life, growing up in the, uh, growing up in the faith, you know, as a, as, a, as a 19 year old, like learning a lot. And I'm so grateful for him. But his brand of, of cessationism is, uh, <laughs> I was gonna say angry, and that's true, but, um, it, 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 but it's, it's very narrow. It's a, very, it's a much narrower, narrower version of cessationism than even many of the Puritans had in, in the 17th century. The Puritans, many of them would argue like, well, um, God could still give people visions and God could still give somebody a dream. It doesn't happen a lot, but I mean, that's not necessarily, it's not revelation if it happens. It's God at work in supernatural providential ways maybe and leading people. They're not shutting down all kinds of activities, activities of, the, of the Holy Spirit, but they would say that there's no more revelation given. So they're cessationist. No more revelation is given, but, uh, but God still does some of these things. So there's, there's various gradations of views within these groups. So if you're talking to one, one of them, it doesn't mean that they represent the whole. There are variations. Now, to let you know where we're at, Baptists historically are cessationist. Reformed theology is cessationist. It's not reformed theology if you are continuationist. It's, it's a hybrid at some point. Now, that doesn't mean it's right or wrong. I'm just talking to you about traditions. So let me just read from our statement of faith or the, the most famous Baptist statement of faith, which is the second London Confession. We call it the 1689 for shorthand. This is the very first paragraph of the first chapter in the confession. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness and wisdom and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. In other words, you're not going to figure out the gospel by looking into the sky, the stars, or staring into the ocean. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagation of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being removed, completed. In other words, in our tradition and background, we approach the scriptures and when we read it, we draw this conclusion. God is no longer revealing the way that he did during the times of the prophets and the apostles, right? Those, some gifts, some things have ceased to function the way they used to and now we're, we have moved on. So what I'd like to do is just take our remaining time to, to talk a little bit about, about prophecy, about visions and dreams, very briefly as we lead into like the, sort of the climax of this, which is in verse 21. So keep this in mind when we're talking about these gifts. You have gifts like the gift of healing. Somebody can have the gift of healing, they walk up and heal somebody on the spot. Gift of healing, total miracle, amazing. We don't see that gift in operation today. We don't see it anywhere. That doesn't mean that God doesn't heal. It doesn't mean that God doesn't heal miraculously. It just works in a different way. And the same could be said for things like prophecy, 
right? Because you see what it says. Oh, in the last days, spirit's gonna be poured out. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men dream dreams. So sons and daughters, all kinds of people, rich and poor, everybody's going to prophesy. That's what is being said here. So what is a prophet or what is prophesying? Well, it is always preaching and teaching. There's always a sense of, of a proclamation involved in that. So there's preaching, there's teaching, but oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, prophecy in the Old Testament and in the New Testament oftentimes is a miraculous, inspired, perfect revelation of the will of God for God's people. It is scripture. It's oftentimes recorded as such. So it's not always that, but it is oftentimes that. And that's usually what we think of when we think of prophets uh, or, or prophecy in the Bible. Sometimes uh, it predicts the these prophets predict the future. Old Testament, that was a big part of it. In the New Testament, only a little bit. We'll even see it in the book of Acts. But that was formal prophesying. Formal prophesying was this miraculous, inspired, sometimes predicting the future gift that established the church. The informal kind of prophesying is what happens whenever God's people are proclaiming God's revelation. So informal prophesying is not God revealing himself in a new way or offering more revelation to the church. It's the people of God relying on the revelation that God has already given us and teaching that. Again, just the, the Puritans, if you don't know, the Puritans were a movement of Christians in the 17th century, came out of England, uh, didn't like the Church of England, had a lot of beef with them, and uh, they were mocked and called Puritans because they wanted to purify worship. Anyways, uh, but they were thoroughgoing Calvinists, and out of them came Baptists. So I like a lot of the Puritans, not all of them, but I, I like a lot of what they had to say, and I think they were really smart. And their most popular book on preaching that the Puritans used was called The Art of Prophesying. So uh, they, they understood that there was a kind of prophesying in the Bible that was miraculous and there's a kind of prophesying that happens that is a bit more normal or common. Informal versus formal. So this informal or more common kind of prophesying is supposed to be happening throughout all ages and by all of God's people. But here, we see it happening in some unique ways and in some miraculous ways. So in, in short, let's think of it like this way. All prophecy is not giving revelation, but all prophecy is preaching revelation. It's always preaching the revelation of God. In the past, sometimes it was a fresh revelation that was given. So there are some on the continuationist side who would say, oh no, God still does give revelations. It's just as equal to scripture. And if you can write it down or hear it, it's just like here in the Bible. Uh, other people that are also in that movement would be like, no, that doesn't happen. There, there's no ongoing revelation. So they would disagree. Wayne Grudem is a theologian that would take this view. So they are kind of defining terms differently and coming to different places with it. But I want you to understand that prophecy is something that God used in the church's life in the first century, but continues to use all throughout the, the centuries because the, the preaching of God's word, the, the proclamation of God's revelation is one of the main instruments that the spirit uses to leverage his work in the culture, bringing people to Christ. So we have prophecy, we've got visions, and we've got dreams, right? Visions. You guys know what visions are. We just spent a year in Revelation, right? So we know what visions are. 
vision, right? It's this dramatic, pictorial, like supernatural, crazy movie playing in your, in your brain uh, where, where God is communicating something. And we see, we see visions. We have Old Testament, Genesis. Uh, we, we see it in the New Testament even. We're gonna see it in the book of Acts, Ananias in chapter nine, uh, verse 10, or Peter in chapter 10, verse 17. We're gonna see some visions. And God's saying, listen, I'm gonna send my spirit. My spirit's gonna be on all of my people and they're gonna be prophesying all kinds of people and they're gonna be having visions and they're gonna be having dreams. Dreams are like visions. The difference is you're sleeping. That's really the only difference I can come up with. They're the same basic thing. It's a crazy kind of, it's a crazy kind of thing. You're this, 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 this movie playing in your noggin, but you're asleep. It's at night. And so it's like a vision, but, you're, it's like, but it's a dream, but it's still from the Lord. And God uses these visions and these dreams to move his people into particular works of service or to bring them to a better understanding of who he is and what he calls them to do and to be. Dreams like Paul, even in, in Acts, uh, Paul in Acts like 16, uh, we, we see these kind of things happen in these dreams. Now, as a cessationist, I'm a cessationist, right? Um, and that's what we teach from the pulpit here. Uh, does that mean that God, if, if there's no more revelation, does that mean God doesn't give dreams anymore, that God doesn't do the whole vision thing anymore? Um, and so there are some in the Reformed tradition, even like historically, like you go way back, um, the Puritans, they would argue like, no, that could totally happen. God could do that. But they would also probably say like, well, listen, it's, it's not the most common thing. Even throughout scripture, signs and wonders tend to happen at particular periods of time in the history of redemption. And things like dreams and visions happen for very specific uh, purposes that had a larger impact than just on the individual. But there's nothing to indicate in scripture that God giving somebody a vision or a dream makes it authoritative like scripture and binding on everybody. So whether there are visions or dreams today, it's more of an open-handed situation. I think God can and probably does that. I've heard good testimonies of this sort of a thing, but I don't think it's a violation of the principle that revelation has ceased. The revelation is complete with the Bible that we have. But the point in all of this, and this is where we've got to land, right? The point in all of this, that God puts the spirit upon his people, fills them, empowers them to be this movement this gospel movement in the world so that people's hearts and minds and lives are actually changed. The church is going to grow and be built by the power of Christ who through the Holy Spirit uses his people to accomplish this goal or to give us success. So really the point here is, is the Holy Spirit gifts the church in a variety of ways, some of them dramatic, some of them for a short period of time, but the Holy Spirit gifts everybody in the church and then uses everybody in the church for the expansion of the church, for the reaching of the lost, for us to actually be successful by God's standards. Now, Peter goes on and he's, he's, he's quoting from, from Joel and then Joel starts talking about like this end of time stuff in this prophecy, right? There's like these, um, uh, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke and the sun shall be turned to darkness and, and the moon to blood. I wish we had time to, to spend in this a little bit more because well, I think fundamentally, this prophecy in Joel is speaking about what's going to immediately precede the day of the Lord. This is all about what's happening in the last days. The last days is the, the last season, the final season before Christ's return and the day of judgment and the day of salvation. But these cosmic descriptions of terror are what happened just before the very end. We saw a lot of this in the book of Revelation. 
But really where the, this, this quote lands, and I think this is where Peter is going, is so that he can get to this, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the point. And that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the spirit is given to the church. The spirit gives every member of the church spiritual gifts so that we can be witnesses, testifiers, disciple makers in the world so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not just gonna be the gospel found in one region or in one country or among one people. The gospel spreads across the world. It is global so that we have a people being saved for Jesus, by Jesus, from every tribe and tongue and nation, every culture, every continent, right? Every, every, every language. There is no one who is excluded from the offer of salvation, if you're hungry, you can come and find spiritual food. You'll find spiritual drink if you're thirsty. You'll find spiritual rest for your souls. You will find cleansing and forgiveness and redemption and you will be made whole. You will be reconciled to God. This is offered to every individual, which is every sinner in the world. You see, we're empowered to do this by the spirit. It takes the spirit in each one of us using the gifts that he gives us to accomplish this goal for us to actually be successful. So the bottom line in all of this is, is what? what are, we wanna be successful? Yeah, of course we wanna be successful. Everybody wants to be successful. But let's define it well, right? We wanna be faithful to God. We wanna do what God calls us to do and we wanna do it in the way that God calls us to do it. That's our part, we wanna be successful. But we also want to be successful and we want the Holy Spirit to bear the fruit of our, of our ministry. We want to see people converted, saved, sanctified. We want to see people's lives made whole, reconciled together because they're now reconciled to Christ. God guarantees our success. That's really the point. God guarantees our success by the Holy Spirit, by his definition. It's by his power. It's by his ways. If we're going to be successful in making disciples, then we will do it his way and we will trust in his spirit because otherwise our success is going to be faked by the flesh it's not going to be the product of the spirit we have the privilege of carrying the message of salvation we have the privilege and the responsibility of addressing the world and telling them as fellow sinners God loves us and sent his son to redeem us. And it's our job to not just share that with them in a passive sense, but to call them to step into that reality, to believe that truth, to embrace that offer and to be saved just as we are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you continue to teach us beyond the time that we have here? We're asking God that you would... Um, that you would convict us if that's necessary, wherever that's necessary, but that you would also embolden us, that, that, that we would experience what you did in, in Peter's life, Lord, where maybe we go from being somewhat frightened and, and cowardly at times to being men and women of courage and conviction who will say hard things and risk even relationships for, for, for your glory and for the good of the people that we care for. We pray, God, that you would give us success. And that doesn't mean hitting any particular size or any number of baptisms. What it means, Lord, is we want to make disciples. We want to do it the way you've called us to do it. We pray that you would give us the desire of our hearts because we know what we desire is the mission 
you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.